meet at Godfrey uh, next week. Uh, it's Palm Sunday. We'll have a Palm Sunday, uh, a bit of a Palm Sunday service and a commissioning service for uh, the new plant. And so uh, join us for that. Uh, the next week will obvious. The following week will obviously be Easter. We do live in a time that that tends to be um, what you might call post-Christian, and so we don't live in a generation that that um, that thinks, "Oh, I should attend church because it's Easter." As much as we used to, but there is a reality, even so, that there are some people who, if you invite them to church, will attend and will come with you, especially if you've been uh, developing a relationship. Easter is a very good excuse to invite someone, uh, someone to church. We will, uh, that will also be a, a, the launch Sunday for the Godfrey Lee uh, congregation. So uh, all of that, that said, next week would be a very good, or Easter would be a very good time to invite uh, people that you've been uh, relating to and people that you're talking to. Be praying about that. There are cards in the back if you want a card to help you uh, help you invite. Uh, this morning we're going to continue uh, with another parable of Jesus. Last week we, we talked about the parable of the prodigal son. We talked about how the kingdom is a grace-based and extravagant uh, kingdom. We talked about how uh, Jesus relates uh, to individuals. And so flowing from that, uh, we're going to have another parable of, of Jesus this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 13. Uh, verse uh, 31, if you'd like to turn there. Otherwise, it'll be on the, on the screen in a moment. Uh, early in the last century, so in the 20th century, there was an author named uh, Ray Bradbury. He wrote a short story. Uh, in his short story, the, the idea of the short story was that someone had created a time machine. The time machine was, uh, was designed to take people back into time so that they could go big game hunting. And what the people would do is they would go back in time to hunt dinosaurs. And so it's the story of one man going back in time to, to, hunt, a, uh, to hunt a dinosaur. But even though they're, they're going through time, even though they're, they're going uh, uh, all the way back, even though you would think that, that uh, hunting a dinosaur would be the biggest issue, what he discovers, what this hunter discovers when he goes back in time is that there are very specific rules for how they interact. In fact, in this, in, in, when they go back to the time of the dinosaurs, instead of having, uh, uh, instead of just jumping out of the, uh, jumping out of the, um, what am I trying to say? Jumping out of the, the time machine and, and running, they have designed the, the, their, their hunting system so that there is a large uh, uh, gravity-free uh, sidewalk, essentially, that they were supposed to stay on. And the hunter asked, why do we have to stay on this sidewalk? Why can't we just run and do whatever we want? And the reason that he responds is that if you step out of in onto the ground, out of the time machine, and step onto the ground, you could kill a mouse. And he replies, well, we're here to kill a dinosaur. Why would it matter if we killed a mouse? He said, well, it's not just one mouse, because if you kill that mouse, that mouse could be the father of a whole family of mice. And so all of that mice's, mouses? All of that mouse's offspring, all of that mouse's offspring would be wiped 
out. And so he says, well, why is that a bad thing? And he said, well, something has to eat the mice. A fox could die for want of 10 10 mice. If you step on the mouse, you kill one mouse, then the whole family, all of the offspring in the future of this mouse are, are wiped out. There could be a shortage of mice. That shortage of mice could cause a family of foxes in the future to die and on and on. And if there's not enough foxes, well, foxes eat other different sorts of things, and those things could get out of control. And if that gets out of control, other things could get out of control, and it would change everything. A quote from the, uh, from the book says this, By stepping on one single mouse... So the, so the caveman stars. And the caveman, please note, is not just any expendable man. No. He is an entire future nation. From his loins would have sprung ten sons. For their loins, from their loins, one hundred sons. And thus, onward to a civilization. Destroy this one man, and you destroy a race, a people, an entire history of life. It's comparable to slaying some of Adam's grandchildren. And so the idea in sort of this futuristic from the last, uh, uh, from the last century short story is, is that everything that happens, in, if you were to go into the, the past, every action would have, uh, have an impact or would have some sort of effect on the future or in, in the case of the hunter, his own present time. He couldn't go into the past in effect the past and not expect the future to be to be changed that's a futuristic novel and yet i think that the idea as we'll talk about in a few minutes plays into what we want to talk about this morning because i would observe just at, at this point the time in which we live today today is tomorrow's past today is two weeks from now's past and so what happens today, similar to as if we had traveled back, does have an effect. And so we'll come back to that idea. But at this point, I'd just like to read to you from Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus is teaching. Uh, he's been teaching in parables, and he continues to teach in parables, and he says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Here's the idea. Jesus is telling a, a parable. He's talking to, to, uh, to the people who are surrounding him, and the parable or the idea is a description of what the kingdom of God is like. And so he launches into, into a description that is, uh, that is agrarian, a, a description that would have made sense to them in their time. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, but he actually makes some, makes some, uh, some changes or he... He speaks of it in a way that they would have, they would have thought was interesting and because most of us are not, uh, are not farmers. Most of us are not agrarian. I don't know if any of you have ever planted mustard seed. I know that I have not. Um, we, we don't re relate right off. But here's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's referring to the mustard seed. The mustard seed is a very, 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 very small seed. It's a tiny seed. 
And he says the kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven starts off as this super tiny thing that a man took and he sowed in his field. So the man takes this tiny little mustard seed and he, and he plants it in his garden or he plants it in his, in his field. The result then is that it's the smallest of seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants has become a tree. Now, if you look up, if you went on the internet or you, you were, were to study, you discover that, that a, a mustard seed typically grows like a shrub. Uh, it, it grows like, 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 a, like a shrub. It does not typically get to be larger than all the trees. But Jesus is trying, to be, is trying to make a point about the kingdom. He says, no, that mustard seed, it's so amazing. The way in which it grows is it grows so large and it becomes a, a tree. Another thing to note even generally about mustard seed, uh, Pliny the Elder writing uh, around A.D. 78 was talking about, about mustard, the mustard plant. And he said, mustard is extremely beneficial for health, but it grows extremely wild. Though it is improved by being transplanted, but on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get a place free of it. And as the seed, of, uh, as the seed when it falls, germinates immediately. So Pliny the Elder, when describing how people felt about mustard seeds and mustard plants in the time of Jesus, described it essentially as an uncontrollable weed. It just sort of grew every place. It, it, it reproduced, and it was unstoppable. If you've, uh, if you've had a garden, uh, some of you know that I, I like to garden. Uh, I focus on, on predominantly three areas. Well, we'll just reduce it to two areas. Stuff I could make salsa from and pumpkins. Those are the two things that, that interest me in, in the gardening world. Some of you remember my stories. Of, uh, I, I once had a dream of growing one of those giant pumpkins. You know the ones that you see on like the news every year where the person grew an 800-pound pumpkin? And I'm like, that's the dream. I'm going to do that. And so I actually set out in my teen years attempting to grow, uh, to grow that pumpkin. But pumpkins are harder to grow at least for me, than you would, would think. And so uh, we grew pumpkins. We had them growing in our backyard, and we never got an actual pumpkin from them for a lot of years. We actually had them, them growing. I planted one of the, the giant pumpkins. I got the seeds of the giant pumpkin, planted that, had them in the garden, and it grew up, and it made giant vines, but then the vines cracked, and I never, I never got fruit from it. Uh, but I was undeterred. I continued to attempt to grow pumpkins many, many years after that. Um, only once in the history of Dave Drake growing pumpkins did I ever get actual pumpkins out of that. But there was one year that we were able to get all of our kids, uh, all of our kids jack-o'-lanterns from, uh, from the planting of, of, of pumpkins. Uh, all of that to say I enjoy certain things about gardening. The things I enjoy most about gardening are, the part, are, are looking at the plants and waiting for, for fruit to come. The part I enjoy least about gardening is the part where you have to till up the, uh, up the land, not my favorite, favorite part. And what I've noticed about me when I plant, uh, what I've noticed about who I am is that... Uh, that I do not tend to take care of the garden as well on day 25 of having the garden as on day one, right? So on day one, you have a beautiful garden. On day 25, uh, weeds start to come up. And then in between there, you might pull those weeds. You might get the, the, the weeds up. But as the days go on, I've noticed at least in my garden and in a lot of other gardens I've seen um, that the weeds tend to increase the longer it is. And so... 
when you first start, you're like, oh, I don't want the weeds to choke it out. I want it to be perfect. And then at day 25, you're like, yeah, that weed can probably grow next to the pumpkin. No big deal. Um, and so that's, that's just me. But the idea is if there was something like mustard seed where you were trying to grow a, a, a garden and it just started to take over, that would, probably be a, that would probably be a frustration or you'd be like, what in the world? My dad one time planted squash and the squash, these squash were like rebel squash. They, they, took, they literally took over the whole garden. There were, um, there were vines every place and they grew up into the lilac trees that they had right next to the garden. And so if you went into the garden that year, you could, pl- you could pick squash off a lilac tree because the, the squash had grown up into it. All of that to say that I think that, that the reference to, to mustard seed is kind of similar to those sorts of things. It is something that grows and it expands and it gets larger and it gets bigger and there is an uncontrollable nature to it. That seems to be what Plenty of the Elder is suggesting. Jesus himself suggests even further that the mustard seed of the kingdom is not just like any mustard seed plant. It's like a mustard seed plant that's the biggest of all the mustard seed, seed plants. Uh, another Jim Drake gardening story, he he had a garden right next to the driveway. When you pulled into, into his driveway, the garden was directly to your left. But for some reason, uh, the, the soil in, in that garden was like steroids for plants, right? And people would, would walk down the street and say, what in the world did you do to these tomatoes? Why are they so huge and why are there so many? And we're like, I don't know, it's the, it's the soil, you know, the soil does that. But he would have the largest and most giant tomato plants. You'd look at it and go, is a tomato plant supposed to get that big? Why is it taking over? It just did because that's the soil in which it grew. I think similarly, Jesus, when he refers to the mustard seed plant in, in this case, he, he's saying, usually, usually they just grow into shrubs. But in this case, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed plant that it grows, it grows, uh, it grows wildly, it grows rapidly, it, it grows everywhere it's planted, it expands, it takes over. But it's so amazing that it grows bigger than you could imagine. There is an audaciousness or a bigness or, or, or a, uh, a lavishness. We might even say last week our discussion was, is God's love extravagant? And the question this week is, is God's kingdom extravagant? In other words, how does it grow? And it seems to be from the references that Jesus makes and the way they would hear it, that this is an extravagant mustard seed plant. It's not just a shrub. It's one that grows up and it turns into a tree from the smallest of seeds. It has grown larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air may come and make nest in its branches. The original hearers, if they were astute, would hear this as, as Jesus restating something that happens earlier in Scripture. So if they had a background in Scripture, if they, knew, if they knew Torah, if they knew the prophets, if they knew these sorts of things, if they had some sort of religious background, they would hear this as, a, as kind of a restatement of something that happens in Daniel 4 and, and elsewhere. And the idea in those passages is this, is that is that there's coming a tree and when the birds come to nest in it, in those places it was, it was to be interpreted as this idea that there was coming a time in history when God's kingdom or God's rule, when Yahweh, as they would have called him uh, in, the, in, the, uh, 
in the Old Testament. When Yahweh's rule was coming to fruition, when, when there was coming a time when Yahweh's rule would, would, would expand so much that it would not just be simply the nation of Israel that, that came to Yahweh, but all the nations of the earth would come to Yahweh and the Gentiles too would receive protection from Yahweh. And so Jesus, when he talks about, about the birds of, of the earth coming to nest, in its branches is probably making a reference to this reality that there is coming a time when the kingdom of God will expand so far. It won't just be the religious people of Israel who come and rest in the protection of the kingdom, but it will be extended to all of the nations. And so the reference to, to the birds is a reference, it, it becomes then a missional reference to the idea that God's kingdom is going to expand to the place that not just people born into, into Jewish homes, not just the children, uh, uh, the Hebrew children, not just those who, who, had, who had grown up hearing Torah and raised in the prophets, but all the nations of the earth are going to come into it. The kingdom of God is like a plant that's planted and it grows out of, out of control, which I mean in a, in a positive way. It grows out of, out of control and it continues to grow and it gets larger and larger and larger and larger and larger and it gets so large that, that the birds of the, of, of the world, or the birds all around come and they nest in its branches for, for protection during the day. They nest in it. That idea is, is, is a parabolic way to essentially say this, that there's coming a time when the kingdom of God will expand, and it will expand beyond these borders, the borders of, of, the, of, of, of Palestine, the borders of Jerusalem, the borders of this place, and it will extend beyond the ethnic borders of, of the Hebrew children. It'll extend beyond the ethnic borders of the, of the Jewish teachers. It will extend beyond that to the point where all the nations of the earth will receive, um, will, will, will rest in the power of the kingdom and rest in the protection of the kingdom. And so in that sense, just like we know from the, from the Old Testament, just like we know from the promises that God gave to Abraham, he said, Abraham, go outside and look up. As many as the stars are, so shall be, so shall be your offspring. And, and the prophecy there, uh, or the, the, the covenant promise there was that God was, was waiting or there would come a time when, when the offspring of Abraham would number from all the nations of the earth. Jesus is essentially restating that idea in a, in a parabolic form or in a parable. Uh, has grown larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. Uh, he then told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took, hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It's the same idea. If you've ever put, in, put yeast into, into dough and you, 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 uh, you knead it into the dough and then you put it away, um, I find that we don't do this the same way as we did it when I was a kid. But my mom would sometimes make bread or she would make, she would make yeast and so she would roll it into the bread and then she'd take the bread and she'd, it'd be just a little, a little clump of, of flour and yeast and whatever else goes into the bread. And then she would take that and she would put it in a, in a bowl and she would then cover that bowl with a, um, 
with a, with a kitchen towel, with a kitchen towel, and then she would put that someplace warm, and so we, uh, sometimes she'd put that on the register to sort of speed up the process, and I remember that it was kind of fun because you could go back and look at it, and what started as a little clump, you would look at, and it would expand over the edges of the bowl. You could like poke at it, and um, you probably shouldn't, we probably weren't supposed to poke at it, but you, you could poke at it. And you poke it and go, that's, it's become firm. It's like stretching beyond its boundaries. It's like the yeast added to this, or, or, or the, added to this, this dough makes it want to explode and get larger and larger and larger and larger. The same idea. This is Jesus just restating the same idea. What he's saying essentially is that something that starts very small and very imperceptible can grow up and, and, and it influences everything and becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. These are Jesus' prophecies of, of, of the kingdom. He hints at the eventual reality of that when he says the kingdom grows up and it becomes a mustard tree, not a mustard shrub, and the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He, that is a, a reference to this reality that the kingdom is going to expand beyond the, the, even beyond the, the current perceptions of the people he's teaching the parable to, beyond their current expectations, he, that it, it's going to become larger and bigger and more and more, um, more and more amazing. And then the same thing with 11. So here, here, here then becomes the point or, or, or the idea, is that if you're a Jesus follower, then you are... You are uh, you are a member of his kingdom. He's the king, but you are, and we are his people. We become then kingdom people. We become those who serve the king in his kingdom. We become those who follow the, follow the ways of the kingdom. But because he's a good king, a loving king, because he has brought us into this wonderful, this wonderful kingdom, we become committed to the things of that, that kingdom. In fact, I know that most of us, who are Jesus followers, have a deep desire to be used by Jesus. We have a deep desire to, to, for, for Jesus to use us in his plan and use us to carry out his ways and use us to do the kingdom things, right? I've not met many people, and perhaps they exist outside of our circle, but I don't meet many people who say, my passion is to be involved with, with a Jesus people or a community of believers who don't do much and nothing much happens. I say I don't see that much. I have seen it before. Here's a, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite stories is that when I was uh, at Westwood Church with, with Tom Bradley, we were moved by our group of churches. They moved us into a building to share a building with another church that was already in our group of our group of churches. And so the newspaper thought this is interesting. Two churches meeting in that same building. Let's go interview them for, for an, an article in the advanced newspaper for how that, how that happened. And so they came and interviewed them to ask Tom what we, what we were doing in about Westwood. And so Tom gives this description, well, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And it wasn't just stuff, but the idea was we're doing these things to, to see that the kingdom of God is advancing and see people come into the kingdom and people join us in the kingdom. So he gave a very long answer to that question, which they printed in full. They then asked the pastor of the other church that was meeting in the building, what they were doing. So tell us about what you do. And he said, this was also printed in full, he said, we meet, we worship, we don't really do much. 
which sort of in my mind explains why our church had been moved into that building, right? I don't hear that a lot, but maybe those people are out there. But that's not the kingdom way. Can we agree that once you encounter the kingdom of Jesus, once you encounter the person of Jesus, you want other per people to encounter the kingdom in person of Jesus. We have a burning passion that others might know who this God is that we worship, who this God is that we know. If Jesus has truly saved us, if he's truly sanctifying us, if he's truly conforming us to his image, if he's done all of that for us, the result should be we want other people to know that. And so I know being around you and I know having pastored you that most of us have this burning passion to see the name and the kingdom of Jesus advanced. We want people to know about this king and we want people to know about this kingdom. And we want lots of people to accept Jesus and we want all of these things. We are in the business of church planting, right? Uh, we plant churches. We planted Crosswinds here in 2001. We've talked about before my misconceptions about how that would go. My thought process of planting that, that church was that we would, which would be this church, that we would plant, it would explode, I'd be famous, and there'd be books written, right? The goodness of God is that he saves us from our own foolishness, and so he protected me to, from that. But there was an expectation, especially when you're young and, and uh, still think you know stuff. One of the things I tell people all the time is that when I was 24, uh, someone asked me, actually in an assessment to be a church planter, he said, you're 24. Do you think you know everything? And at 24, I was too stupid to know that I did think I knew everything. So I said, no, it was one of many things I didn't know, but I said, no, I don't think I know everything. But the reality is, is now in my 40s, I look back and think, I definitely thought I knew stuff, man. I thought I knew everything back then. Now at 41, one of the greatest things I know, one of the things I realize more than anything uh, is that uh, I don't know stuff. The goodness of not knowing, thing, the reality is like, if I know anything, it's this, it's that I don't know anything. For instance, my wife is arguing that I'm 42 right now. She just gave me that. I said 41. She said, you're 42. Uh, and so apparently I don't know how old I am. I can't do the math up here. I'm not convinced she's right. Someone ask her how old she is. I can do the math from that. So I don't know stuff right? And that's the best thing about me currently. I know that seems terrible, but I, there, there is a, there's something to the youngness. You're like, I know stuff. And I'm a, so my thought process in being a church planter is that I would be ravenously and insanely successful. At the assessment center, when I was being assessed, one of the guys who had been planting churches for years, he himself in his middle 40s, who had, who had planted churches very successfully, listened to our description of the neighborhood. And he said, what you're talking about is going to take time. Are you willing to be there 15 to 20 years before you see any sort of impact, any sort of effects? And I was like, sure, I'm willing to. But I did not believe him. I thought immediately, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Dave Drake, everybody. That's me. And I thought that I knew, right? But the reality is, he was right. In fact, I've seen it over the years that year nine in Planted Crosswinds was so much more effective than year one. And year 10 was way more effective. And we're in year 16, and, and the blessing of God seems 
to be growing and expanding in a way similar to a mustard seed. In other words, stuff keeps happening to us and we can't even talk about all of the stuff that is happening to us and we're working through right now. But honestly, we're in like maybe a mustard seed phase where we're like, this is growing kind of out of control. And it's almost like we didn't ask for some of this stuff. But God seems to be blessing in that way. But he didn't bless that way in year one. And he didn't bless that way in year five, and he didn't bless that way in year nine. He blessed more in each of those years, but he did not give us what we, in, we uh, and mainly me and other people who, were, who, had, who had been foolish enough to follow a 24-year-old to plant a church, um, there was an expectation. God did not give me those expectations. He gave me something different. But this is the reality, is that each of those points and each of those turns, I had an expectation and a desire that God would build his kingdom. Now, to a certain extent, did he have to hold that back to get me out of the picture so that I could honestly say, let me decrease so that he might increase? He did, but there's also a reality is that he works on his own timescale and he works in his own way. And God does what God wants to do. And yet in all of that, in God doing what God wanted to do, I was desiring to be used. I was desiring to be a part of his kingdom growth. I was desirous of those things. And so if you asked me, let's say that I died before year 15 of Crosswinds, before we get to two congregations, before we get to some of the other stuff on the horizon, before the, this period of blessing, if I die in year 15 before we launch Godfrey Lee, uh, before we work on some of these other things, were you used and were you effective? What's my answer going to be? And what is my level of, 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 of satisfaction in, in how I've been used? My answer now is this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's tiny. And I might just be, be the mustard seed part of it. I might just be the tiny part. But if from that tiny part, it grows into something else and it continues to grow, the issue has ceased to be about me and about my expectations and about you and your expectations. But the issue is, is the mustard seed growing? And the reality is, is that sometimes we look around and we compare ourselves, which we should not do, to other ministries. We compare ourselves to other churches. We compare ourselves to things going on in other neighborhoods, none of which are Godwin Heights, none of which are Godfrey Lee, typically not even urban congregations. We look around and we say, nothing good's happening. Why isn't it happening? Maybe we're ineffective. And it can be, it can be, depressing. It can be deflating. It can be uh, flabbergasting. God, I'm doing what you asked. Why is nothing happening? The parable of the mustard seed is the answer to that. There is always something happening. The mustard seed is always growing. If Pliny the elder is correct, it is growing in a way that we cannot control. It's growing in a way that we cannot manage. It's growing in, in a way that we cannot, in a sense, direct. There is the reality that God is about carrying out his plan and he is about doing what he wants to do through his plan. So the idea that, uh, two things, the idea that God desperately needs crosswinds for the carrying out of his plan is a falsehood. And I don't say that to depress you. I say that to be honest with you. God is carrying out his plan. He will do what he wants to do. Secondly, 
the idea that if we cannot measure what God is doing through crosswinds on the same scale as we can measure what God, what God might be doing in churches, for instance, in the suburban areas of Grand Rapids, Michigan, that we are not being effective is also a falsehood. Neither of those things is true. So one of those, I want to say to you, God does not need you. He will accomplish his plan. It doesn't seem like good news, but the reality is it's great news. He doesn't need you, and yet he has chosen to work his agency through you. That's good news, right? You're not integral to the plan. <laughs> the plan does not hinge on you. You are not, uh, you are not the key. So there's, there's this idea in science, and I just want to talk about it for a minute. It's called irreducible complexity, and it has to do with how DNA and how things form and how things work. But the concept of irreducible complexity is simply this, is how many things can you take away from something and have it still work, right? You don't need to know that. What I really want to talk about is a mousetrap, okay? The mousetrap is the example of irreducible complexity. It's a perfect example of irreducible complexity. How many parts does a mousetrap have? Five, right? Yeah, five. It's got the bottom part, that part that whacks the mouse, whatever that's called, right? It's got the part that holds back the thing that whacks the mouse, right? It's got the thing that the thing that whacks the mouse hooks into, and it's got a spring, right? Now, here's my question. Which of those things can you take away and the mousetrap will function? The answer is zero. You can't take away any of those, those things. The mousetrap does not function if you take away any of those. A mousetrap is irreducibly complex. People try and come up with better forms of doing the mousetrap, but the mousetrap, as I just described, irreducibly complex. That's what we, we use to do it. You can try other things, but that's the best mousetrap typically uh, out there. That's how a mousetrap works. Irreducible complexity. I want you to realize something. In the kingdom of God, the irreducible complexity is Jesus. He might choose to work through other things. He might choo choose to use you in his plan. He might choose to allow you to be involved in his plan. He may allow you the joy of being a missionary for his kingdom plan. But irreducible complexity is Jesus. Jesus is irreducibly complex. He does not need you to accomplish his plan. So there's joy in knowing that if you get to be a part of his plan, that's the goodness of God. That's a reward. That's awesome. Second thing, then, is that because it's Jesus carrying out his plan, he will do what he wants to do. We get to step out of the comparison game, right? Go, hey, we're not big. Like Grand Rapids, and if you're not from Grand Rapids, like your whole life, like I am, let me just clue you into the Grand Rapids reality. Because Grand Rapids typically has a few very large churches. And then Grand Rapids typically has one church that is the largest church. But the church that is the largest church in Grand Rapids rotates every few years. Why does it rotate every few years? Because Grand Rapids, especially to our suburban rings, and so the further you get from the center of Grand Rapids, the more church, the more evangelical you get as you, as you progress outward. And so in the center of Grand Rapids, in neighborhoods like Godfrey Lee, Godwin Heights, southeast side Grand Rapids, you get third generation unchurched 
folk, you get urban folk. If you go out a few rings, if you get into, into Kentwood, you're going to get a mix of, of what I just mentioned. And then you're going to get a mix of long-staying, churched people who have church background. You go one more ring, you're into Caledonia. And I will guarantee you that if you did the statistics, the population of evangelicals who, had grown, who have grown up in churches explodes. It gets much higher in Caledonia. It gets much higher as we go to Byron Center. It gets much higher as we go to Granville at Jenison. That's just a fact. You have these, these rings around Grand Rapids. And so one of the things that happens in Grand Rapids is that those people, due to upward mobility, due to migration, due to inter-church squabbles, due to all kinds of things, when you get into the rings of Grand Rapids, uh, which are predominantly or overwhelmingly evangelical, at least to their background, they do tend to populate lots of larger churches on the edge of Grand Rapids. We have friends who pastor some of those churches, and so this is not a critique of those churches. People living in those places need Jesus every bit as much as people living in our, our communities. So it's not a critique, but I just want to point out this, that we cannot, in Godwin Heights and Godfrey Lee, compare ourselves to a church that is on the edge of Caledonia. And the reason is, is, is simple. The reason is this, is that in Caledonia, you have large groups and large swaths of people who have been raised in and are used to the idea that Sunday morning is for going to church. In urban neighborhoods, you have large swaths of people whose idea is that Sunday morning is for going to sleep. Or Sunday morning is going to work. Or Sunday morning is going to breakfast. Or any list of things. But you have large swaths of people because of high immigration and because of multiple generations of unchurchedness. You have large groups of people that woke up this morning and do not give a thought about going to church. And in fact, if you ask them to list a hundred different things that they could do this morning, church is not going to appear on the list because it does not appear anywhere in their brain or in their heart. This is a third generation unchurched community. Godfrey Lee is a multiple generation unchurched community. Both of these communities are high immigrant populations. In Godwin Heights, that means we have people immigrating here from various Muslim nations. In Godfrey Lee especially, and also true in Godwin Heights, we have people immigrating from, from Mexican-American communities. Here's the interesting thing. They did a survey about, about uh, Mexican male immigration. Do you know that the, mo the group most likely to be atheist and resistant to the idea of church is Mexican males who have immigrated from a Catholic background? They uh, make up a large portion of neighborhoods like Godwin Heights and Godfrey Lee. To which we should say, by the way, praise God, you've given us a good mission field. But what we should not say then is why are we not Redemption Church? Our friends, uh, our friends planted Redemption Church in Granville, in the neighborhood I grew up going to church in. They planted that, that church. They have done very well. They planted it a few years ago. They're in the multiple hundreds. Why are we not Redemption Church? We could say that. Why are we not Calvary Church? Why are we not Calvary Baptist? Why are we not? We shouldn't ask these questions. The reason why is we're not called to reach the people that they're called to reach. And so sometimes being called to be a mustard seed means that you get to drop out a comparison. You were, were not called, by the way, like I don't see any place in Scripture where it says that God is going to judge you on the basis of any sort of number. We don't see that. We do see faithfulness, and we do see a description of the kingdom like a mustard seed. From small things, grand things or great things grow. And so we get to drop out of that, that comparison 
we do not have to compare ourselves. So then, to state this, this positively, I'm influenced by this, 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 missionary, um, this missionary thinker from Great Britain. Again, uh, I believe from the early 1900s in Great Britain. His name was Roland Allen. Roland Allen wrote a book called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. And the idea in The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church was this, is that if you continue to plant the gospel in places, that maybe we can get to the place where church, the church just starts to expand because it, it expands and you, you can't control it. Essentially, his, his philosophy of church planting or his dream for church planting was very similar to Jesus' idea and plenty of the elders' idea of the mustard seed. It just expands. It's unstoppable. I think in history that is true of the, true of the church. So all of that to say this, stated, stated positively, here's the reality, is that we are kingdom members. We are mustard seed people. You remember at the beginning of this, I told you the story <laughs> that, that Ray Bradbury wrote about how the past affects the future, right? And while we can't get into time machines and go back and affect our present, the reality is, is we live right now in our present, and what happens today is going to have some effect on tomorrow. That's a fact. And so the idea that we, we don't have to go back, right? This, if you step on it, to use his mouse analogy, if you step on a mouse today, that mouse is not there tomorrow, right? And so you currently live in the past of next week. So, from a kingdom perspective, that's what this means, is that, this, is that you live in a time where if you live for the kingdom, if you live in a kingdom way, you can have kingdom impact, and that kingdom impact, just like in Ray Bradbury's story, what happened was they messed up some stuff, and it affected the whole future. It affected from the time of the dinosaurs to when they went back to their own time, thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future, it had had an impact. That is not viewable from any moment. You can't see that. And unfortunately, God has not given us a time machine. But here's the reality, is that your moments and the days of your life have been given to you for a purpose. God does not need you, but he appears to want you, and he appears to be willing to use you in agency of his kingdom and his kingdom work. And if God is going to use you in his kingdom work, then this, the same is true. Just as if you stepped on a mouse today, it would have some sort of impact into the future. Uh, maybe not as great as Bradbury imagines, but it would have some sort of impact on the future. What you do today will have an impact on the future as well. And what you do for the kingdom today is going to have an impact on kingdom growth tomorrow and maybe even much longer. And so those of you who know me well know that I am a reader of missionary biography. When I am stressed, when I, when I, am, I just need to relax my mind, I read missionary biography. One of my all-time favorites is a woman named Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was, was one of the first, uh, the first single Christian missionaries sent out. Uh, this is very early 1900s. She's not married. They send her as a missionary to China. Uh, I recommend reading her biography and how that happened and how she got there. It was a struggle. It was a struggle where God protected her every step of the way. And fortuitous things happened. But she finally arrives in China. When Lottie Moon arrives in China, for the first time ever, she is happy with God, who God has made her because she understands it. Because she had grown up in a community where people were predominantly tall. She had grown up 
in a community where, where people predominantly had light-colored hair. She had grown up in a community where people had predominantly fair skin. She arrives in China, steps off uh, uh, the transportation, arrives and looks around and realizes for the first time that there was a reason that God made Lottie Moon four foot nine. There was a reason that God gave Lottie Moon dark hair. There was a reason that God gave Lottie Moon a complexion that was different than her friends. God was preparing for her to be a missionary in the land of China, where it would it naturally, uh, what God had made her, it, it, it matched up with what he had made her to do. Lottie Moon goes through a lot of processes, and if you read her story, it's this fight to minister. She's fighting to minister, fighting to minister, but eventually she becomes so effective at ministry that she's almost unstoppable, right? She is leading people to, to Christ. People are getting saved. The government officials all around here in a place where, where Christianity was largely persecuted. And one point in her story, uh, to try to intimidate people away from Christianity, they gather around them a large number of, of Christian university students and they chop their heads off to try and make an example of them. That's, the, that's where Lottie Moon ministered. And yet at the same time, she was able through relationships and through other things, she was able to reach government officials. And so government officials were being led to Christ, and then they needed her to do various things for the government. And she told them, fine, I will do that. I will go visit these places on behalf of the government where you need a woman you can trust to go. But you need to know I'm going to tell them about Jesus when I go. And they said, okay. And so Lottie Moon went into all of these places and was leading people to, to Jesus and leading people into the kingdom. Lottie Moon uh, began by adopting one child, and she ends up having a hundred adopted children as a single woman in China. One of the, one of the, the most interesting scenes of her life is that when the, the, the nationalist government, the government in, in China becomes so nationalist uh, that it, it leaves an opening for the Communist Party and there's all kinds of, all kinds of war and all kinds of dissension. They have to flee the, flee the country. Lottie Moon takes her and her hundred children and they start to walk. And they're walking and finally they, they, um, they find a, a train and they lay on top of the train to, to get back and out of the dangerous area. But they were laying on coal. And so when Lottie Moon, who began as slightly darker skinned, when Lottie Moon ends up where she gets there, she is coal black from everything that is, that is, that is transpired. And she and her hundred children climb off from the top of this train where they've rode and, and they end up getting to safety. When she gets back, the interesting thing is that Lottie Moon had several sicknesses that were so extreme during that time that they all should have killed her. At her lowest, she had gotten down to weighing only 50 pounds, and it wasn't being treated. She was just out there trying to serve Jesus. And uh, I say all oh, say I love the story of Lottie Moon, and I find it very interesting, Lottie Moon's story. There was not, though, in China, as I've made this point to you before, when the missionaries are kicked out of China in approximately 1954, when Lottie Moon is no longer allowed to go back to China, there's only a handful of believers in the country. But the mustard seed has been planted, Right? Uh, uh, I, I've read others say this several times that if you go into the cemeteries in China, you will discover there gravestones. The gravestones have them have have English names on them, and you say, "Well, whose names are these?" Those are the names of the missionaries who have died in China 
trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet those gravestones form the mustard seed from which we know that Christianity has exploded in China, even though it's com- it has been at various points completely illegal up to the point now where there's some legality to it, but it's still persecuted, and Christianity is exploding there. Why? Because Lottie Moon, someone most of us have never heard of, someone who you can't say, well, where was her mega church? She never planted a church. Where was this? People like Lottie Moon were there and they formed the mustard seed and the mustard seed took time to grow. But when the mustard seed was fully grown in China, it was an uncontrollable, it was an uncontrollable plant. It took over all of China. China, even though Christianity in a lot of ways is, is held down, even though they have an official state church that tries to control what, what Christians say, even though they have all of that, the reality is that so many people have come to Christ in China that it is almost as if China's society is becoming Christianized because there are so many believers. That's the mustard seed. But that's disconnected. Let me give you, uh, give you another mustard seed. Uh, my grandfather, Glenn, Glenn Drake, uh, born Glenn Otis Drake, but those initials make G-O-D. So he changed it, Glenn V. Drake. My, my grandfather on my, uh, my dad's side was not a believer growing up. And so before he met Jesus... He was, uh, he was known for making dandelion whiskey in his basement. Um, I assume that's during Prohibition is why he's, why he's doing that. He was making dandelion whiskey and playing music in bars and living, living that lifestyle. At some point, Jesus gets a hold of Glenn V. Drake. And Jesus radically saves Glenn V. Drake. Now, here's what happens, right? Glenn Drake meets Jesus. Glenn's wife meets Jesus. Then their third child, right? Their children are born to them. Their third child meets Jesus. The third child's Jim Drake, my father, right? So that's one step on the mustard seed, one impact, right? Jim Drake meets Jesus. But my father uh, at the time meets a, a, a young woman named Sharon Saunders. Now, Sharon Saunders is a good woman. Uh, maybe the best woman I've ever met. But Sharon Saunders, at the point that she starts to date Jim Drake, does not know Jesus. This is a problem. And so, uh, so Glenn Drake once again becomes involved. So Glenn Drake, my, my, my dad's dad, goes to my mom, and he leads my mom to Jesus. Now, my mom had grown up. Uh, my grandma and my mom my mom's side was not, a, was not a Christ follower, but she had been brought to church by an aunt, but in this going to church, she'd never heard the gospel. And so she was a good person, but she'd never heard the gospel. And so Glenn goes to my mom and leads my mom to Jesus. That's, that's second in, the, in kind of how the mustard seed functions, right? So then after those two meet Jesus, they, have, they, they are married uh, sometime in the, in the 60s there, Sometime also in the 60s, uh, my oldest sister, uh, Tammy, is born. Sometime after that, my next sister, Jody, is born. Sometime after that, my brother, uh, Jeff, is born. Sometime after that, my sister, Sue, and youngest of those five, me, right? I'm born. Here's the interesting thing. So Jim Drake and Sharon Drake both know Jesus, and they raise their children to know Jesus. Now, sometimes we talk about, well, this is, what does it take? Was he this, this? My father worked at Steelcase. 
My father uh, worked in the, in the factory at, at Steelcase. Uh, he did not have a, a, a corporate job. He did not run a business. Uh, he's not, as far as I know, famous, right? He's none of those things. Here's what he was. He was a great father who consistently lived out Jesus in front of his children so that my first sister, Tammy, knows Jesus. My second sister, Jody, knows Jesus. My brother knows Jesus. My sister, Sue, knows Jesus. And I came to know Jesus. Now, my oldest sister, Tammy, marries a man named John Dubois. They get married. They have five children. Those five children, we can, we can say because they're all older, those five children know Jesus, right? They all know Jesus. They are starting to have their own families and raising their children to know Jesus. Uh, they later on adopt two more children and are raising them in the faith. My next sister has five children. Those five children know Jesus. My brother Jeff has, does he have four? There's so many. Uh, does he have five? The, look, we can't do math. Drakes can't do math. We're the worst at it. It's five. In our defense, they had the one really, really far after the last one. Okay. So my brother Jeff has five kids, but the five kids are being raised to know Jesus, right? Then along comes Sue. My sister Sue uh, has four. That one's four, right? That, uh, four children, and those four children are being raised to know Jesus. Along comes us. We have three children born to us. We raise those children to know Jesus. I can say confidently that they do know Jesus right? It's the only thing that gives me hope a lot of days is they know Jesus because some days they're rough. Then sometime after that, we adopt another child. On his first Good Friday living with us, he encounters Jesus after, after a Good Friday service. In that, I, that, there's all kinds of grandchildren. You can imagine that if you put my whole family in here, just descended from my mom and dad, we fill this room. There are a lot of us. Here's the interesting thing. Those people know Jesus. They know Jesus. Here's a secondary fact then. So if you're sitting here this morning, if you're sitting in Crosswinds, you are a shoot from the mustard seed that started with Glenn V. Drake. Why? Because God called me to plant this congregation. If my grandfather does not meet Jesus... My father does not know Jesus. My mother does not know Jesus. It all goes backwards. Then it's like the mouse was stepped on in the past and it wiped out the race of Christ followers in, in the future. But you all sit here as a result of a man you've never heard of. His name was Glenn Drake. He loved Jesus. He was awesome. But you sit here because Glenn Drake met Jesus. The point of all of this is to say that the reason that there's going to be a congregation in Godfrey Lee is because Glenn Drake met Jesus. The reason there's currently a congregation in Godwin Heights is because Glenn Drake met Jesus. If I've baptized you, if I've led you to Christ, if I've been there for any spiritual growth in your life and you've been discipled by me, you need to know the reason. It's a dude named Glenn Drake. You've never met him. He died in the year 1991. Some of you not born yet, most of you very young. But if you're here and you've met Jesus or grown in Jesus through the ministry of Crosswinds, it's because Glenn Drake met Jesus. That's what a mustard seed does. That's a mustard seed. And so, and so what I want you to understand is that the way that the kingdom functions, the way that the kingdom is, you might not get it. You might not see it. You might not understand it, but take cheer in it. If you will simply follow Jesus and encourage others 
to do the same, the impact that it will have years and years and years from now will be that people will know Jesus. Count Zinzendorf once said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. May that ever be our mustard seed prayer. You don't need to know Glenn Drake's name. You know Jesus. You don't need to know who I am. Know Jesus. They don't need to talk about crosswinds 40 years from now, only that Godwin Heights and Godfrey Lee would know Jesus. That's what a mustard seed does. That's the kingdom. May God's church spontaneously and amazingly expand and advance. Pray with me.